Well, it is good to have you here, and thank you for entering into that time of glorifying God uh, together with us. Uh, we've come now to what is the last four verses in James. We've been in this series. In fact, can I tell you, uh, as long as I've been a pastor, I've never done a series as long as a series. We just said, and really at the beginning, didn't even know uh, how long that we were going to be in it. Just thought we're going to start in chapter uh, 1, verse 1. And we're just going to keep talking through this book, teaching through this book, listening, learning, growing through this book. And so now we've come to the final, final message uh, in the series, the last four verses. And, and you're about to see in just a moment, I think it is so accurate to say that probably these last four verses are some of the, if not the most important verses in the entire letter. We've been through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, into chapter 5, and now we come uh, to the last few verses of chapter 5, and what is this uh, incredible, uh, practical, wisdom-giving, motivational New Testament book. Now, like many of the New Testament books, James is actually a letter. It's a letter written by James uh, to a group of Christ followers. Now, here's what you've got to understand. Some of you have heard me allude to this. Uh, when a biblical writer would write, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, God would always use their personality or their temperament or who they were. They weren't going to change and become an entirely different person because they would be breathed upon by God. In fact, uh, inspiration, it simply means that. When it says that one of these Old Testament and New Testament writers, in fact, all of them, were inspired, it was as though God, using their human uh, personalities and intuition and intellect and temperament, but, but God breathed upon them, and God using those things about them would cause them to write the things that you and I have now today. Now, James, um, you'd have to say when he wrote this letter, um, he was certainly cognitive of, of what he was saying. And I think he was, um, in reality, understanding that God was using him. And in many respects, this letter that we have from James, two followers of Jesus, it's an instructional letter in so many different ways. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive in, as I mentioned to you, the final four verses, and they begin like this. We'll, we'll talk about it in a little more detail, but let me just go ahead and tell you how he begins the end. This is how he begins the last four verses. He says, Elijah, Elijah, now keep that in mind. We're going to talk about his role in this. Elijah was a human being just like us. Now, when I read this, and I've read through James many times, I've read about the life of Elijah, but I don't know that I've ever paid it as much attention because I've never really talked that I can recall. If I have, it's been a long, long time ago out of these last four verses. So it's amazing to me, it's interesting to me that all of a sudden now, James would insert Elijah, this key player from the Old Testament, into what is the conclusion of his letter. And he says, you saw it just a moment ago, or you heard me read it actually, Elijah was a human being like us, and that is what he is saying. He's a lot like us, and he was. Elijah was a lot like us in that he struggled with fears and doubts, and he struggled with temptation, and he struggled with painful circumstances, and he was, as James said, and he's laying the groundwork early on, he was saying he is a human being just like us. And in so many respects, he was, except with one notable exception. James would know this. And the notable exception of this, and him being uh, just like us, except for in this one area, uh, I doubt that any of us, this is going to be true of our lives, but it was true for Elijah. Elijah was actually, you go back into the Old Testament, and you study his life, he was actually able to bypass death completely in that he was translated into heaven. 
You think about that. For Elijah, Elijah, uh, he, never, he never dies. He never, nobody in his family ever has to conduct a funeral or plan a funeral service for him. Uh, Elijah bypasses death completely. It's amazing when you think about it. Uh, just think about, about it in this regard. It's like, you know, and I'm using my imagination somewhat here. It's like one moment, here Elijah is. He is seated in row 14, seat C, at Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia. And then a second later, he's in heaven, which, by the way, is also massively populated with Georgia Bulldog fans. I just thought I'd add that in case it wasn't clear to you. One Bible scholar has accurately stated this concerning his supernatural transfer into heaven. Again, he never dies. Nobody ever has to have a funeral for Elijah. He goes one moment he's walking the earth. The next moment he's in heaven with God. And this one scholar has said that this had greatly impressed itself upon the imagination of all of the Jewish people. They would hold Elijah in high regard because of the way that God used him, number one, as a prophet, but the way that God took him home to heaven and that he never had to face death. This was so important to the Jewish people, but really, when you think about it, it went beyond the Jewish people because many others were convinced, and I don't know that I've ever paid attention to this. I've probably read this passage 2,000 plus times, but I've never seen it quite this way before that many others were also convinced that uh, Elijah was such an important person because they believed, many of them believed, that Jesus actually called out for Elijah while he was dying on the cross as though... Uh, there was this idea, many of them standing around when they heard Jesus do this, thought that he was calling for Elijah to come and help, to come and save. Now, where do they get that from? They get that from something that Jesus said in his final moments. And I'll tell you what he said. This is not in our, our English language, but this is Jesus, his final words, some of his final words in his dying moments on the cross. When he uttered out, and he uttered it out loud enough that a lot of people heard him say this, he said, Eli Eli, 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 Lama Sabathani. And a lot of people standing around, they just said, you know what he's doing? He's calling for Elijah. In fact, the very next verse, now this is out of Matthew's gospel. The very next verse says, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabathani. And he was not calling Elijah, but that is how highly regarded Elijah was. Now, here's what we've got to ask. Why would James give some airtime in this letter? In fact, the conclusion, maybe you might would think one of the most important, if not the most important part of the letter, why would James give Elijah such airtime? And we're going to dive right in, and you're going to see this. So let's read. You're going to see the, last, the first two of the last four verses of James 5. This is verses 17 and 18, and I want you to look at it carefully up here on the screen, and I might have you repeat some portions with me. So take a look at it. This is what James is saying. He inserts James or Elijah into the story, and he says, Elijah was a human being just like us. He, speaking of Elijah, he did what? Say it with me. He prayed. Say it again. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for how long? Three and a half years. Look at the next verse, verse 18. Then Elijah prayed again at the conclusion of this drought. 
Then Elijah prayed again, and the rain came down from the sky, and the land produced crops again. And it's like James is saying, all of a sudden, it gets to the end of his letter. He's not going to end it passively. He is very focused, and he says, consider Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us, except, you know, what I mentioned. And then he points out that he prayed these intense prayers. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three and a half years, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Now, you might be saying, well, why in the world? If you've ever studied Elijah's life, um, you know this, but for those of you that you're not really familiar with this guy out of the Old Testament, again, a key player out of the Old Testament, a, a great prophet, you would wonder, well, why would a guy pray, pray that it would not rain? Why would he pray something like that? You know, and and that it did, you saw it, and he prayed, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Well, why would he do something like that? I mean, you've got to rule some things out right in the beginning. Let's rule some things out. He did not pray that way because Elijah was about to go on an extended vacation and just wanted very, very nice weather while he's on this extended vacation. That is not why he prayed it. Now, think about this for a moment. It's, it's funny to me, and we fall into the same trap. How many of you love to go on vacation? Let me just see your hand. It's okay. It's not a trick question. How many of you love to go on vacation? Now, how many of you have noticed this about yourself? Your emotion at the beginning of vacation is quite different from your emotion at the end of the vacation. Have you noticed? How many of you have noticed that about you? You're like excited. You're like giddy. You're packing up. You're headed off. This is fun. Everybody's happy. And then everybody is in sorrow and mourning the last day of vacations. Like everybody's, woe is me. Vacation is over. Have you ever had this happen? You look so forward to vacation and all of the outdoor activities you're going to do and the relaxing that you're going to do outside. And then it seems like it rains the whole week while you're on vacation. It's like just messes things up. Was Elijah praying that God would hold back rain for an extended vacation? It was absolutely not that way at all. What Elijah was hoping, and this is important for you to see. You've got to know this, friends. You've got to capture this. What Elijah was hoping would happen is that God would stop the rain. He would halt the rain and that it would bring a drought. Now, why would he pray that? Because he wanted a drought to ring the bell of those who had been tagged as God's people. You see, there were a people, there was these Israelites that God had called them into this unique and special covenant relationship. In fact, God said this about them. He said to the Israelites, he said, this is how I want it to be. I want, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And this is something unique among the people of the earth. He said, I am calling you into this special covenant relationship. And what an amazing place that would have been to have been in, to be in this covenant relationship with God, where God is specifically saying to you, I am your you're God and you are my people. And you would just think that they would be entirely devoted to him. But instead of, think about this now, in Elijah's day, instead of loving God and serving God and obeying God, their lives were filled up with multiplied sins and utter corruption. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah, this is why he would eventually have to ask God to stop the rain. Elijah initially goes to the priests and the leaders of Israel, and he talks to them about this. He said, you're so corrupt. You're so evil. Your sins are stacked up to the heavens, and you're rebellious, and you're defiant against a God that loves you and called you into a covenant relationship. And and you need to repent, and you need to turn from your sin, and you need to direct your allegiance to God once again. And the priests and the leaders, you would have thought that they would have heard 
from this mighty prophet and heeded his words, but instead they totally ignore what Elijah is saying to them. And so it's like Elijah is thinking to himself, well, if the priests and the leaders are not going to look, listen to me, then I'm going to bypass them, and I'm going to go directly to the people. And he goes to the people of Israel. Again, God's special covenant relationship people. And he looks at the people, and he announces to them, this is what God wants to do. God wants to bless your life. And you are God's people, and he is your God. Stop your rebellion. Stop your disobedience. Stop all of your sinning. And repent. Get on your knees and turn to God. And the people would not take action either. And so it's like Elijah has no other choice. And it's as though he thinks to himself, well, if God is really God, and if God can do anything, then God could cause a drought. Then perhaps if God will send this drought, and it's serious enough, this rebellious people will do what I've been asking them to do, and they will fall on their knees, and they will repent of their sin, and they will will return to God. What does he do? James tells us that Elijah prayed earnest prayers. And that's what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to grasp out of these two first verses of the last four. To just just embrace this reality that there's nothing that God cannot do and that you would pray earnest prayers, intense prayers. James is leaving us with this thought at the finality of his letter. In our lifetime, you and I are going to face circumstances that are bigger than we are and that we are going to have no control over whatsoever. So what do we do when we face those? And all of us are going to face those. It's going to happen to you. It may be happening to you right now. Where you're faced with something that is in your face, that is mocking you every day, and your circumstance is bigger than you are, and you're incapable of managing that on your own. It's a situation that you cannot exert any kind of control over to change the nature of the outcome of it. And you're like, well, what am I going to do about that? You know, am I going to quit? Am I going to give up? Am I going to blame God? Am I going to blame people? Am I going to live the rest of my days in fear? Am I going to say no thanks to faith? No, James would say, and he'd bring Elijah into this story to say, no, that is not what we do at all. Instead, we intensify our prayers. We keep calling out to God. We have a number of missionary families uh, that attend our church, and I love that, by the way. And there's a guy that I read about some time ago. He's uh, a pilot in, in the Congo region, and his name is Burley Law. And he tells, and I'll share it in his own words, how that he was once flying his plane, and he was trapped in what he called a deadly sky by a storm that seemed to come out of nowhere. And so as he's in the middle of this storm in a small plane, he lost his bearings as thunderclouds surrounded him on every side. He said, here and there openings appeared in the clouds, and I would keep turning this plane toward those openings, following, as he called it, little patches of blue like a needle through fabric. Finally, he saw a landing strip beneath him, and he landed his plane with a sigh of relief because he thought that they would, it was all over, that he was going to be lost in the storm. But he found this open sky, brief, and he landed He said, as I landed, suddenly a vehicle came racing up to my plane. A nurse ran to me saying, I don't know where you came from, but I know that you're an answer to our prayers because there's a missionary couple that is here that has been isolated on this remote mission 
The roads are impassable, and the bridges are out. The wife has become seriously ill with high fever. And early this morning, this is what we did. We gathered together all of the Christians of this village, and we prayed earnest, intense prayers for help. And God responded by arranging the storm clouds in the sky to direct you and your little plane to this very spot here on earth. And I believe, friends, and you'll never convince me otherwise, that God is not capable of doing these kind of things. In fact, I want you to read this verse with me. This is in the New Testament. This is Mark's gospel. This is something that Jesus said to some of his followers. And I'd like for you to read, read it with me. Everybody now, let's read it. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Read this last phrase again, everybody. All things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. All things. You think about that in your own life. What I've been hoping and what I've been praying leading up into this service today is that that something would click on the inside of every one of you. That something would click on the inside of you right here, right now, as we've gathered together in this place, and that you would say, you know what? That is right. That is right. All things are possible with God. How could I have ever forgot that, that all things are doable with God? And friends, that when that would just click and resonate in your mind and in your spirit, that you would not rule yourself out. You would not convince yourself that you are the exception to this divine truth, that you would just say, well, that's true for a lot of people, but there's no way that that can be true for me. No, it is true for you. And all things are possible with God for you in your situation. You've got to embrace it. You've got to claim it for your own. How many of you ever found this to be true? Have you ever found it to be true that it was easier to pray prayers for other people than it was to pray prayers for yourself? Have you ever found that to be true? How many of you have ever had this experience? How many of you have ever prayed for somebody that had a great need and it was like for their need, you had a much larger faith for them than when you had a need in your own life? You prayed for them with big faith. You prayed for yourself with microscopic faith. But you have to believe that this is true for you, that all things are possible with God. In fact, can I just tell you, friends, listen, listen, listen. Please hear me on this. This is one of the foundational beliefs of Christianity, that God can do whatever God wants to do and that God can work miracles and that he has been capable of this throughout history and he is still able to do so today. But you have to believe that. And again, you've got to believe it's true for you. Bill Hybels wrote, God's supernatural strength is available to praying people who are convinced to the core of their beings that he can make a difference. Do you believe that for you? Do you believe that is true, that all things are possible with God for you? Then I would have to ask you, what are you asking God to do? I mean, maybe you look at your own life and maybe you look at your health and you just say, you know what? I'm not getting a lot of hope. I'm not getting a lot of optimism. I'm not getting a lot of good news. But I am convinced that you, you'd believe that all things are possible with God. There are some of you that are here that your, your emotions are just all over the place, highs and lows of your emotions. But it was like God would bring you here to this place today to have somebody say, and I just happen to be the messenger this morning, to be able to say, no matter what you face with your emotions, all things are possible with God. 
Now, maybe you look at your life. Maybe you look at something in your family, something going on in the lives of your kids or in your own marriage, and you would just say, you know what? It it just seems that nothing well is going on in my family, in my marriage, in my home. And I would just have to remind you here today that all things are possible with God. It's true where you work. It's true in the lives of your kids. It's true in your mind. It's true concerning your addictions and your habits and your hangups that you just feel like there's no way I'm ever going to be able to conquer this or overcome this. God sent me to tell you today that all things are possible with him. There's nothing he can't do. And you've got to believe that. And you've got to embrace that for your own life. So go ahead right now. Nail this down. Do not walk out of this building today until you are firmly convinced to the core of your being, till you believe it to your toes, that all things are possible with God. It's true for you. You've got to grab it. And you've got to believe it. And you've got to embrace it for your life. Now, the last two verses. And the guys are not going to put them up quite yet, but, man, you think about this. How would you, how would you end a letter? And it's like, it's like James held up what he was going to say to us in these last two verses. It's like, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to end this letter. There is no way that I'm going to lose this opportunity writing to all of these Christ followers. There's no way that I'm going to put a period at the end of this letter without giving us these last two verses. And I want you to see them. They're on the screen, and they are so profoundly important. I want you to look at what James says. Last two verses of this incredible letter. He said, My brothers and sisters... If one of you wanders away from the truth and someone helps that person come back, remember this, anyone who brings a sinner back from the wrong way will save that sinner's soul from death and will cause many sins to be forgiven. You know what he's saying? In the first two of the last four verses, James is using Elijah to say to us, pray earnest prayers. Pray intense prayers. Believe that all things are possible with God. Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Perhaps it will not rain, and God will do this. And James said, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Now what James is saying to us in these last two verses is intentionally go after those who have strayed. Did you know that some of the most important prayers, hear me on this, that some of the most important prayers that you will ever pray in your life is for people you know who are far from God, to pray for them, to believe for them. James, this brother of Jesus, he does not, it's not like he begins and ends with prayer. It's as though he now issues a call to action. He talks about prayer, and I do not want to underestimate the validity and the power that is associated with prayer. That's undeniable, and you've heard me speak to that, even as recent as just a few moments ago. And he's not saying that prayer is unimportant. He just doesn't begin and end with it. He issues, though, a call to action. He says, you saw it, help that person come back. Bring a sinner back. Bring them back to God. And what is James saying? James is saying there comes a point, listen, where you get up off of your knees and you close your Bible and you walk out of your prayer closet and you step out there and you hit the field. Yes, this, in, this is something that requires intensified prayers. But now James is calling us to personal effort and activity. 
And in actuality, I just want all of us as a church family to know this, and I want to speak to us so directly, to you, to me. In actuality, we're going to have to become a lot more focused and a lot more determined about this. And the reason I say that is so easy to slip into apathy. And I know that. I know how easy that it is to slip into apathy because this has occurred in my life before. And maybe, maybe it's going on in your life. And how do you know? How do you know when you're becoming apathetic? It's just when you seem it way too easy to keep living in your own little tidy world and you don't look beyond it. And you ignore this reality. You ignore the reality that people are lost and that people who die without having a personal relationship with Jesus, that they are going to miss heaven and they're going to spend eternity in hell. And that is not God's will. It has never been God's will that even one person would spend eternity in hell. It has never been the will of God. In fact, can I say it this way? God never created hell for people. It was created for the devil and for those who work in collaboration with him. But people just say to God then and now, just forget God, forget God. I don't need God. I don't want God in my life. And they just choose a path. And unfortunately, that path leads directly to hell. And again, it's not God's plan. It's not God's will. That's why God sent Jesus into the world, the best that he had, his only son, to pay off his sin debt for every single person. And somehow you and I, listen, friends, you and I have got to stand between that person that is on that wayward path. We've got to stand between them and hell. I was so captured by a statement in a book that I read a year ago to this month. I don't even remember the name of the book, but I remember the statement, and I wrote it down, and I brought it with me, and I pray that it will just jolt you in the way that it did me. Listen to what this writer said. This writer said, take hell, take hell out of the equation, and evangelism seems like a nice but not necessary activity. Listen to that. You take hell out of the equation, which you can't do, by the way. But if you were to do that, at least in your imagination, take hell out of the equation, and evangelism seems like a nice but not necessary activity. But they add, put hell back in, and everything suddenly changes. And it does. And here's what I want to ask you to do in the few moments that we have. I want you seriously, candidly, forthrightly, to do a little self-assessment right in your own life and to just ask yourself, I mean, if you're evaluating, you're self-assessing between two poles of comparison, here's what you're asking yourself, all right? You're asking yourself, am I apathetic or am I being activistic? I mean, one of two things. And where in between do you lie? Do you find, and I'm going to give you some markers to help you self-assess, but do you find yourself, I mean, when you really think about truthfully, think about yourself, are you leaning toward apathy? Are you leaning toward being activistic? Now, how do you know? And I'll give you some things to consider, and it will help you define that for your own life in this self-assessment. Number one, ask yourself, am I praying intense prayers for spiritually lost friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers. Are you doing that? I mean, again, self-assessment, uh, you know, and here it's either apathy or activistic. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Praying these intense prayers for f- people in your life that are far from God, people that live around you in your neighborhood, people that work where you work, people in your own family, people that you are friends with that are far from God. Are you praying earnest prayers for their salvation? Which is it? 
Apathy or activism? Here's the second thing to consider. Am I consistently inviting people to church? Am I doing that? Do I consistently invite people to come to church with me? Now, that's a big thing. That will tell you a lot about yourself. I mean, and I, I want to mention something, and some of you don't know this because you're newer uh, to our church. Our church is hard to believe, but our church started 10 years ago. And you know, when we started, we had, and we have not deviated from this at all, we had this idea, we had this belief that what God would want us to do, that we would be a church, that we could partner together with the people of our church, that through the messages and through the music and through the ministries of our church, that it would be such an atmosphere that when you came in, as a follower of Jesus, not only would you be challenged to grow, not only would you be fed spiritually from the Bible, but that it would also be an environment, again, through the messages and through the ministries and through the music, where your irreligious friends could still resonate with what is going on in here. And that's why, and maybe you don't think about this, I think about it every week. It's why I want to speak each weekend in, in relatable, using relatable terminology. You know, intentionally, I don't just power up on all these theological words. It's not because I don't know them. But I don't want somebody that you bring to church with you that you've been praying earnest prayers for them because they're far from God and you're believing God for their salvation. For me to stand up here and your friend walk out and say, I have no clue what he is talking about whatsoever. I've never learned Christianese. And that's all he was speaking is Christianese. And I didn't get a thing that he was saying. It's why we do music the way we do music. It's why we gear our ministries the way we gear ministries. Not only so that you can be fed and challenged and grow, but when you bring your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers into this place, that they'll be able to hear and understand about a God that loves them and about a God that has a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful plan for their life. And they don't walk out confused and saying, I, I don't get it. I couldn't relate to the music. I couldn't relate to what was going on. I have no clue what that preacher was saying. I have no clue. No, we don't want it to be that way. And so we're working hard to do our part. Are you working hard to do your part? Are you bringing them here? In fact, a way to evaluate that is just stop right now, right now. Time out, time out, and ask yourself this question. Everybody, when's the last time I've invited somebody to church? When's the last time I invited somebody to join me right here on a Sunday? And it will tell you. It will let you know. Just your response to that will let you know. Are you leaning toward apathy? Or are you leaning toward activism? Let me give you a third marker to consider, and it is this. Are you sharing your faith with those outside of God's family? Are you doing that? Are you sharing your faith with those who are outside of God's family? I want to I just take a moment and tell you something that is so incredibly weird, and we all do it. In fact, this is what I want you to do. I want you to just look at your neighbor and just say one word. Just look at your neighbor, somebody seated near you. Just look at him. Say one word. Just say weird. Just do it. Go ahead. Just say weird. Now, you may need to go back and clarify and say, I wasn't calling you weird. I'm just doing what Jeff asked us to do. But this is so weird. Weird. This is so weird. I think all of us would agree, you would agree with me, that the greatest thing that has ever happened to our life, if we're a Christian, that the greatest thing that has ever happened to our life as a Christian is that we have received Jesus Christ as the Savior and the leader of our life. That is the greatest thing that has ever happened to us, to know Jesus. And yet, why is it that we feel so awkward talking about him to other people? I mean, it's the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. We don't talk about him a whole lot. 
We'll talk about our family. We'll talk about our kids. We'll talk about our grandkids. We'll talk about our spouse. We'll talk about our work. We'll talk about sports. We'll talk about what we're going to do. But the greatest thing that has ever happened to us in Jesus, and it's so weird that we find it awkward to talk about him. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I praying intense prayers for spiritually lost people? Am I consistently inviting people to join me in church? Am I sharing my faith with those who are outside of God's family? Now, Eugene Peterson, I I want to share with you a a story from his childhood. How many of you have heard of Eugene Peterson? Just lift your hand. Just lift it. Pastor, scholar. How many of you are familiar with the Message Bible? The Message Bible. It was Eugene Peterson who translated, you know, the Bible into the Message Bible to make it easier for people to understand. All right, Eugene Peterson, in talking about his childhood, he writes about how he grew up in a very, very devout uh, Pentecostal Christian home. He said, but when he started the first grade, he felt the tension of life with non-Christians. First time in his life when he went off to school that he had ever been around non-Christians. Again, this is one of the great pastors, writers, scholars about Christian faith, spiritual life in our day. And yet he describes what happened when he went to the first grade. Listen to this carefully. He said, I went to the first grade, and when I went to the first grade, it didn't take very long for a second-grade bully by the name of Garrison Johns to start picking on me. I became his victim. This is what Eugene Peterson, I'll actually read his words. He said, I'd been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, blessed are those Bless, or by memorizing this, these two verses, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. He said, I've learned that. I've been prepared by my family. I'm stepping out into the world. I'm going out into the first grade. And I've been taught, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. He said, I don't know how Garrison Johns, this bully, knew that about me. Some sixth sense that bullies have, I suppose. He said, but most afternoons after school, he would catch me and he would beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian. And every day, Garrison Johns, this bully, would taunt me with these words, Jesus sissy. That's what you are, Eugene. You're a Jesus sissy. He said, I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world, and I better get used to it. Real compassion there, right? She also said I was supposed to pray for him. He said, one day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon, and he started jabbing me like he always did. And Eugene Peterson, again, this great Bible writer and translator and scholar and pastor, he said, that's when it happened. He said, that day something snapped. He said, for a moment, he said, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison, and to my surprise and to his, I was stronger than he was, and I wrestled him to the ground, and I sat on his chest, and I pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. And I thought to myself, this is too good to be true. So I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good, he said. And I hit him again, and blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. This is Eugene Peterson now. I said to Garrison, say, uncle. He wouldn't say it. So I hit him again, more blood. Then, I love what he says next. He said, then my Christian training reasserted itself. And so I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried to get him to say it again. Say it. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. And then Eugene Peterson said, Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. That is not the methodology we're going to use. It's not how we do it around here. But are you sharing your faith? Shake yourself once again. Just do it. Just shake yourself. Settle it in your mind and heart. 
that the greatest gift that you could ever give to another person is an introduction to Jesus who left a throne in heaven for a cross on the earth, dying for the sins of everybody that would ever draw air into their lungs. Why? Because, because God loves lost people and those who have strayed, and he does not want them to die in their sins and to be forever separated from him. We see the heart and the love of God and the attitude of God. Look, jumping back to the Old Testament for just a moment, this is out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33, 11. Look at this verse up on the screen. You see how God feels about wayward people and lost people and strays. He said, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure whatsoever in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live. And then you see the urgency of God. You see the urgency of God. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? And God is saying, you don't have to die. I don't want you to die. I want you to live. And James says, help that person come back. Bring a sinner back. You've got to do it. Pray, he said, intense prayers. Pray intense prayers like Elijah prayed. Intentionally go after those who are far from God. James said, help that person come back. Bring a sinner back. I, I don't watch a lot of movies. It's not because I'm opposed to movies. I love movies. It's just hard for me to sit still for a whole movie. But a number of years ago, there was a movie that came out. It was a great, great movie. It was about rescue diving. And uh, the movie was called, uh, it was called, now I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. That would help. It was called The Guardian, The Guardian. Now, some of you ladies, okay, truth be told, you went to see this movie because of the lead actor, who was Kevin Costner. He played this, this uh, famous, legendary diver. And the movie comes to the end, and I remember this. And uh, it's like Costner, the role they played, as far as I can recall, it was based on a true story. And so there's this up-and-coming hotshot diver who asked this retiring legendary diver, what's your number? He says to him, what's your number? He wants to know how many rescues the record holder carries. This young competitive diver is assuming that he's going to hear this outrageous number, like two or 300. But instead, Costner's character replies, what's my number? What's my number? My number is 22. 22. The young guy shot. 22, he says, with utter disappointment. I thought you'd save many more than that. The veteran looks back over his shoulder and says, 22 is the number of people that I lost. That's the only number I've ever counted. Lost people matter to God. They should matter to us. When you really think and you self-assess, Am I praying these intense prayers? Am I inviting people to come to church? Am I sharing my faith? It will tell you a lot about where you're at, where I'm at. Apathy, activistic. James leaves us with some powerful thoughts. And I just pray, I would ask, that you would just allow them to just shake you to your core all over again. And look beyond just your tidy little neat life and how it's lived out every week. And start seeing what God sees. People who are far from Him. And just like Ezekiel, when the Sovereign Lord says, turn, turn, turn from your wicked ways. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want you to repent so that you can live. And God wants to use you. In fact, God has chosen you to stand between your wayward friends and neighbors and co-workers to stand between them and hell. 
just help to lead them to a point where they can know the God that created them for the purpose and destiny for their life. Would you stand for a closing prayer, everybody? Let's all stand. Now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, those of you who are in this room right now and you just say, you know what, that's who I am. I'm a lost person. I'm a stray. I'm not living in a vibrant relationship with Jesus. I'm not ready for heaven. I know I'm not. I know that I need forgiveness. I want Jesus to come into my life. I've never really thought about what he did for me, that he would leave a throne in heaven to come and die on a cross on this earth for me, for me. But he did it because he loves you. And he's got a plan for your life. How many while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, would you just lift your hand and say, I want, I want to receive Jesus into my life. I want to become a follower of, of Jesus today. I want to know my sins are forgiven and that I'm ready for heaven. If that's you, you just lift up your hand real, real high. I'm not going to ask you to do anything beyond that. That and to say a prayer with me. I see your hand. I see other hands. I see your hand back there. And you can put them down. And right there in your heart, in your mind, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to pray a prayer with me. Some of you, are, you're already in the family of God and you just, again, you need to say, what am I? Am I, am I activistic? Or am I apathetic? You know, am I praying these intense prayers for those who are far from God? Am I inviting them to church? Am I, am I sharing my faith? Others of you just say, you know, I'm like Elijah in the fact that I'm at a desperate place in my life and I need to, I need to pray and believe because I am not yet convinced in the way that I need to be that all things are possible with God. And I want to claim that today. I want to embrace that in my life for me and for my circumstance that all things are possible with God. And you would do that. And while I pray this prayer, you just say, God, I believe, I believe, I believe, help me. Those of you who want to receive Jesus, you just pray this right where you're at. Dear God in heaven, I know that you love me. I know that you love me enough to send the very best that you had in your son, Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross. Although he was sinless, he died for sin, my sin. And I'm so sorry for my sins, and I want to know that they're forgiven. So, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you wipe the slate clean? Would you give me a brand new start? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you show me the way? Will you help me to understand your word? Will you teach me how to pray? I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. And I want to know that one day when I die, that there's a secure place for me in heaven. So I don't worry about the afterlife because I know it's in your hands. Thank you for receiving me. And I receive you today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, can we put our hands together and just give us What a great day, and we wrapped up James and started something brand new. In fact, I'm just telling you ahead of time. I know we're out of time. Next week would be a great week to go ahead and invite somebody to come to church with you, and let's pray and believe and see what God will do. I love you. Have an awesome week.